Well, morning, church. Morning. A couple of confessions before I get started. Just clear the decks. Um, Nimrod's a, a clever guy. Um, when he approached me some time back and suggested that maybe just a little bit later in the year uh, I could uh, be part of a, just a couple of teachers and we could share a little message, uh, seemed a long way away. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's fine, Nim, we'll, we'll do something. If only I'd realised, like... This is the busiest time, the most hectic time in the life of a school. Um, and the closer it's got, the busier I've got. And uh, so, thanks, Nim. And then, oh, you can go last. Have the other guys first and you can go last. Oh, good, that'll give me a bit more time to think about it. And then Paul presented, did an awesome job. Then Euler and Shane did an amazing job. And then Bart last week, not only did he preach, but he put on a play as well. It's like, I've got nothing after all that. So anyway, God, God will provide. Uh, I was still saying that last night about nine o'clock, but uh, anyway. I, ha- I have a good family, um, and when I, I'm not a nim to let the cat out of the bag, I'm not a I'm not a comfortable preacher. It's not something that comes naturally to me, and um, so I I'm not a regular preacher. But when I when I do preach, my wonderful family provides me with an abundance of sermon illustrations, <laughs> and. Uh, <coughs> They, uh, they always get a little bit nervous, especially Michelle, uh, when, when I preach. Uh, so she's been feeding me. So here's an idea. Here's a story. Here's something else. It's kind of, I, I reckon it's been just to hopefully uh, keep the attention off her. But, but I do have a wonderful family. So Braden's contributed today by disappearing. Um, and, and, and I think that's a good strategy on his behalf. He's down in Sydney with his girlfriend and uh, as far away from dad when he's preaching as he can. Michelle, she provides me with routine. She allowed me to provide her breakfast in bed this morning, which is a, a blessing. Everything's normal. Just give me my breakfast in bed and, and, and everything is, is fine. So thank you, darling. Um, and my darling daughter, Belinda... This is what she provided me with this morning. So, uh, next Sabbath, if you, uh, <laughs> if you want to come around about 8 o'clock, as long as Belinda is home, you never know what you might get. Uh, if she's not there, don't come. It's not, it's, it's not worth it. Let's just bow our heads before we start. Lord, uh, I just want to... Thank you that uh, when we've got nothing, uh, you still provide. And Lord, I just ask that you'll speak through me today. And as we conclude this series, be like a child. Lord, whatever it is that you want me to say, your message, uh, give me those words, Lord, and and speak to the hearts of, of each person seated here this morning, that, Lord, they may hear what you want them to hear, is my prayer in your name. Amen. So what I want to explore with you this morning is the power of God. We've, we've spent the last four weeks or three weeks and then today talking about what, it, what God means to us through the eyes 
of, of a child. Um, and we're going to wrap it up today looking at God's power, at least initially through the eyes of a, eyes of a child or from the perspective of a child. We all grow up with heroes. If you walk into the typical bedroom of most children, there'll be posters plastered on the walls and, and, and of, of our childhood heroes. Um, a lot of girls, not that I'm gender stereotyping or anything like that, but a lot of girls will have pop stars or cool, very handsome-looking actors or, or, or any of that sort of stuff. And, and boys, yeah, maybe some pop stars, but maybe a few sports people and, and things like that. For me, unashamedly, it was sport. Um, so I'm a bit of a sports nut. Uh, always have been and still am to this day. It's, it's something I enjoy watching. Uh, it's something I enjoy participating in. And I, I'm always challenged to try and emulate the amazing skills of, um, of, of different sports people. Um, in my, my younger days, and I'm talking late primary school and moving into, into junior secondary, my sport, my thing, was tennis. Um, and, and I did. I enjoyed playing tennis. I grew up in, in country New South Wales in a place called Bathurst. And um, we, we moved house. I, I started my life on a farm. Dad was managing a property and up till year three, I grew up on a farm. That was an awesome life. It was a, it was a great life. Uh, but then we moved into town and we moved into a house, lived there for a while and we moved into another house. Now the really cool thing about that house is the next door neighbours had a tennis court, which was pretty cool. And uh, they had uh, a son who was probably three or four years older than me and he was a pretty good tennis player and the father was a pretty good tennis player so Tony learned to be a tennis player as well and we'd spend a lot of time on the tennis court. Um, so one of my childhood heroes was a tennis player and Ellie's going to put him up there. Now I'm showing my age here. I, I know I actually uh, how many people know who that is? All right, you've just classified yourself by your age. Um, <coughs> this gentleman's name for the younger ones amongst us is Jean Borg. Now, Jean Borg uh, was a Swedish tennis player. He, he went on to the professional circuit in 1973 at the age of 16, uh, which is pretty incredible. Um, and you know what I really liked about this guy? <laughs> I thought you'd say the hairstyle, but anyway, it's all right. Um, he had ice flowing through his veins. Um, he was the coolest, most uh, ice as in cold ice. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> You're right? Yeah, okay? Yeah, no, no. See, it's a different era. That's the thing. It's like back then ice was ice. It's, uh, okay. There we go. 
No emotion. When he played tennis, and I'm sure some of you have watched his games, um, there was no emotion. Uh, He'd hit a lousy shot, he'd just get on with it. He'd get a bad call, he'd just get on with it. Uh, And he was a pretty good tennis player. He won five consecutive consecutive Wimbledon, Wimbledon titles in a row. And um, he, he, he was, he's probably one of the greatest tennis players of the modern era. Now, there's been some pretty good tennis players since, but Borg started it. Um, through, he had a 10-year career playing tennis. Uh, he actually had a comeback, had five, six years off, and then had a comeback, which wasn't great. Forget comebacks when you're a sports person. Um, but the 10 years he played, uh, he dominated. And he could do things that other mere mortals could not do. Um, in the second half of his career, a young, brash, arrogant, loudmouthed tennis player by the name of McEnroe arrived on the scene. And they had an epic times competing against each other. Um, Eventually, at the ripe old age of 26, when Borg decided finally to retire, John McEnroe was starting to assert his dominance over him. But uh, the second last Wimbledon final, which I think was in 1980... They had an epic five-setter. McEnroe, in his usual style, was going off his head uh, at everything. Uh, And he won the fourth set in a tiebreaker, 18-16. McEnroe did, but then Borg came back and took him in the final set, 8-6, the fifth set, and won his fifth consecutive Wimbledon title. What really sucks is the next year McEnroe beat him in four and that was kind of the beginning of the end. But Borg was one of my childhood heroes. I I can remember as a kid, um, mum mum and dad both worked. So during the school holidays, uh, we had to go either with dad to work or with mum to work and just find things to do that didn't interfere with their work. And and mum worked at a TAFE college. And out the back of the TAFE College, really old buildings and big brick walls and asphalt and stuff. And there was a place where I could play tennis. And I'd hit tennis balls against this wall. I'd draw a chalk line about the height of the net. And that was actually really good practice for me. Uh, And this is about 11, 12-year-old. And I was Borg. Except he had a two-hand backhand. And I I didn't have a two-hand backhand, but that was okay because I was unique. And so, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd just be like Borg, as, as you do, as, as a young fella. Um, so that was, that was one of my, my, my childhood heroes. I've, I, I am a fiercely patriotic person. And, and so if there's an Australian sports person that I can follow and emulate, I will. I'm always wanting the best for Australians. Now, tennis at the time, there really wasn't any Australians making it happen. Eventually, we, we had Pat Cash, but he was a bit of a loud mouth. Um, and then we had the other Pat. 
Pat Rafter. I like Pat Rafter. Okay, so I, I latched on to him. And then Leighton Hewitt came along. In the early days of Leighton Hewitt, wasn't really a fan, but he grew out of it, so that was okay. So I was able to follow him because he, he was an Australian. But I took up basketball when I was in year 10 at school. Now, we didn't have basketball teams at school in my early days, but then in Bathurst, Bathurst, Orange and Dubbo, three regional centres, the three high schools of those three towns had this... 100-year-old sporting competition called the Ashley Cup. And some bright spark said, we need to introduce basketball as one of the... We used to play rugby league and we'd do hockey and we'd do netball and uh, we'd do athletics. There was a whole bunch of sports. It was a big, big deal. And then they introduced basketball. Nobody at my school, this is a school of 1,500 kids in a high school, we didn't play basketball. So I was in year 10 at the time. And a group of us got together and said, well, we need a basketball team. So we learnt to play basketball. And that was my first introduction to, to basketball. So I started to follow basketball. And there were some guys going around, and you're not going to... Some of you remember their names? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Big glasses he used to wear. He was about 7 foot 10 or something or other. He was massive. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was, was the man. And then there was a guy called Magic Johnson. Um, and he came along. He was a pretty good basketballer as well. And there was a white dude, Larry Bird. Now, Larry Bird was white, and he could still play basketball, which is quite unusual, especially in the NBA. So I thought, yeah, I, I, I can get onto him. And then this bloke came along, Michael Jordan. And he changed the face of basketball. And it wasn't just me, but half of the world had a poster of Air Jordan, uh, Michael Jordan. So lots, lots of heroes. Um, In my more recent years, as I have matured, I have developed an interest in cycling. And I'm fascinated by the Tour de France. One day... Where's Bryce? He's going this year, next year. I think the lucky, lucky, I was going to say something, but lucky guy. <laughs> um, I, I have, I confess, I have sat up till 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning watching the Tour de France and just watching each stage evolve and develop. There's a few hardcore people here who will understand this fetish. Uh, there is something about those guys and the superhuman things that they do. Now, you mere mortals wouldn't understand, but to be honest, a bike riding 180 kilometres just as a regular day out with 150 other guys in the peloton and they're cranking along at a speed around average 50 kilometres an hour. You try and ride a bike 50 kilometres an hour just for two minutes. Hey, Craig, it's hard work. Uh, But to do it... all day for four and a half hours for 180 kilometers, and then climb a hill that goes like this and just keep powering on. They're superhuman efforts and, and, and endeavours, and, and I am a fan of Cadell Evans. Um, 
confess that. I'm not a fan of Lance Armstrong. Very disappointed in him. But, but Cadell Evans, who is an Aussie and won the Tour de France for Australia, uh, amazing guy uh, and, and amazing things. I also grew up in the era of Muhammad Ali. Okay? Uh, again, you all know I am the greatest... Uh, what is it? Uh, fight like a butterfly, sting like a bee, all that uh, arrogant son of a... Yeah, he's really... But, but an amazing world champion boxer back when boxing actually mattered and we cared a little bit about, about who was the world champion heavyweight of the world. Now, funny story about Muhammad Ali. Sitting on a plane one day, as he does, seatbelt undone, uh, just in there, waitress... Uh, Waitress. Air hostess comes along. Excuse me, excuse me, sir. Can you do up your seatbelt as you do? Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> Superman don't need no plane. Do up your, your seatbelt, sir. So he was put in his place, which was, which was nice. We put people up on a pedestal that are extraordinary human beings. They exceed what the normal human can do. And I think our own children, and this is a really neat part about being a parent, our own children do that to us as we, especially in, the, in their younger years. And I sure do miss those years. <laughs> I can remember the days when Braden and Belinda looked upon me, I could do anything. I could do no wrong. And anything that they could expect and ask, their dad could do. I really do miss those days. Uh, I can remember Braden, this high, some of you know Braden, he used to love to be thrown up in the air. And I'd just throw him higher and higher and catch him. And he never once doubted or questioned that Dad would be there to catch him. I've got Buckleys of throwing him up in the air now, but anyway. As they grow up, they start to recognise our weaknesses, our imperfections, our inadequacies... And they maybe don't trust us quite as much or they don't hold us quite on that same pedestal of amazing power and amazing capacity. I've been thinking this week as I've I've been thinking about what I was going to say actually last night, but anyway. uh, I can't help but wonder whether we do the same to God subconsciously apply those same limitations to God that we do on our own parents as we grow up and mature. Because that childlike faith, the faith that children have in God, I wonder whether we do that, sorry, the children have in their parents and having God as we grow and mature, whether we, we start to do that subconsciously. I'll, I'll come back to that a little. We're going to explore today God's power and how 
we can tap into that power. And why maybe it seems that children are able to do this more effectively than adults because their world is less complicated. Their view of the world is, is less uh, complicated. Maybe they just have a little bit more belief. I'm just going to go through a series of, of texts and Ellie's going to put them up on the board so that we, we don't end up running over time. There are so many examples in the Bible of God's amazing infinite power and if you're if you're sitting here today wondering just how powerful God is just reflect on these verses Luke 137 for the word of God will never fail in another version it says God's power nothing is impossible with God God's power will never fail Ephesians 320 I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident... <laughs> that, was, that was tricky. 320. 320. Now we're going to get this. There we go. Now, okay. Now all the glory to God who is able, listen to it, through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more then we might ask or think. So not just what we ask, but infinitely more than anything we could think to ask him. Okay, now we can try Ephesians 1, 18 to 20. Um, hmm. We're going to skip over to the next one. Not sure what that one's there for. Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Okay, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who receives, the door will be opened. Last one, Matthew 17, 20 and 21. And I don't know about you, but I've always been challenged by this verse. You don't have enough faith, Jesus told them. I tell you the truth, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, what's it say? You could move a mountain. Move, move it from here to there and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. Michelle's reading a book at the moment and uh, she showed me something in the book which uh, she said, hey, this might, this might be something to share in, uh, in your sermon day. It's a book by, by Joyce Meyer. Um, and it unpacks a formula for accessing God's power, God's infinite power. And she, she describes it this way. Number one, we need to believe in God's power. Number two, we've got to ask him for an outpouring of that power. And then three, we've got to look for his answer. Believe that he can do it, ask for his help, and then look and see how he does help us. It's kind of neat. I, I, I I quite like that. I'm going to share a story with you, and, and there are thousands of such stories, probably tens of thousands of such stories that uh, demonstrate 
this same challenge. But this one's kind of neat. A doctor missionary by the name of Helen Rosevear, uh, she hails from England, and she's, she was working in Zaire in Africa. And she shared this incident that happened. One night they were working in the labour ward of, of the hospital, trying to save a mother who'd gone into labour prematurely. Very primitive situation, um, no power, so you can get the picture, and the mother didn't make it, she passed away. But they saved a tiny premature baby, and the mother left behind a, a, a two-year-old daughter as well. They knew it was going to be a challenge just to keep this preemie baby uh, alive. They, they had no incubator. They had no electricity even to run an incubator, so uh, it didn't, wouldn't have been any good anyway. No special feeding facilities. And although Zaire is placed on the equator, uh, they still get cold, chilly nights. And they're going, well, how are we going to keep this, this baby alive? One of the student midwives, because uh, uh, they were teaching nurses there, um, went and got a box, which they used for little babies, and cotton wool, uh, and, and tried to wrap the baby up in, in the cotton wool. Another went and stoked the fire that they had, and went to fill a hot water bottle. The student nurse came back, shortly afterwards, very distressed, to tell um, Helen that when she was filling the hot water bottle, it, it burst. And it was the last one they had, and in the tropics, rubber perishes quite quickly, so they didn't have a hot water bottle, which is kind of crucial to keeping this baby warm. As in the West, we say don't cry over spilt milk, so... Helen says in Central Africa it might be considered no good crying over burst burst water bottles. They got on with the job. Uh, Water bottles over there don't grow on trees. Uh, There are no chemists down the nearest forest pathway. They they had nothing. So she says, all right, let's see what we can do. They put the baby as close to the fire as they could without obviously burning her and and told one of the student nurses your job is to sleep between the baby and the door to try and keep the baby warm enough and and we'll do our best the following noon so that was they got through that night the following noon uh helen as was her practice went down to the local orphanage where she would spend time praying with the the children there and uh, she'd make suggestions about different things that uh, they might be able to pray for. And she shared about this tiny little baby uh, that was so vulnerable and they were worried would catch a chill and, and die. And thought it might be good to pray for this baby. They also told the orphan children about the little two-year-old who, who didn't have a mum anymore. During the prayer time... One ten-year-old girl, Ruth, prayed with the usual blunt conciseness of the African children. And this is what she said. Please, God, send us a water bottle. It'll be no good tomorrow, God, as the baby will be dead. So please send it this afternoon. And then she added, 
Oh, and while you're at it, can you send a little dolly for the little girl so she knows you really love her? As often with children's prayers, Helen was put on the spot. Could she honestly say amen to that prayer? She says, I just did not believe that God could do this. Yeah, we all know he can do everything because the Bible says that, but there are limits, aren't there? The only way God could answer this particular prayer would be by sending me a parcel or sending Helen a parcel from the homeland. She'd been in Africa for four years. She hadn't received one parcel from home. And even if someone did send a parcel, why would they put a hot water bottle and send it to the equator where it's, we all think it's hot? Halfway through that afternoon, and this this kind of bit of a goosebump thing, while she was teaching in the nurses' training school, a message came to her that a car had pulled up outside of her house. By the time she reached home, the car had gone. But there on the veranda was a 10-kilogram parcel. I felt, she, she says, I felt tears pricking my eyes. Couldn't open the parcel without calling the orphanage children to help her. Together they carefully pulled off the string, undid each knot, folded the paper carefully, taking care not to tear it. Excitement was mounting. Some 30 to 40 pairs of eyes were focused on this large cardboard box. From the top, she lifted out some brightly coloured knitted jerseys or jumpers and eyes sparkled as she gave them out to the kids. Then there were some knitted bandages for the leprosy patients, which the kids weren't so fussed with. Uh, Then a box of mixed raisins and sultanas, which is a bit of a treat for them, and they'd use those to make some buns uh, for the weekend. And then she says, I put my hand in again. I felt that could it really be a brand new rubber hot water bottle? And she just says, I just broke down and cried. I'd not asked God to send it. I'd not truly believed that he could. Ruth was in the front row of the children. She rushed forward crying out, if God has sent the bottle, he must have sent the dolly too. And so she dived into the, what was left of the parcel, rummaged around, and sure enough, down at the bottom was a beautiful little dressed dolly. Her eyes shone. She never doubted. Looking up at Ruth, she said, can I go over with you and give this dolly to that little girl so she knows that God really loves her? That parcel had been packed five months previously by her former Sunday school class whose leader had heard and obeys God's prompting to send a hot water bottle even to the equator. And one of the girls had put in a dolly for an African child five months before in answer to the believing prayer of a 10-year-old to bring it that afternoon that's that's God's power and as I read that story I had to ask myself the question could I have prayed that prayer could have I have really believed that God would answer a prayer like that to have a childlike belief in God 
a belief in his power, his infinite power. This week, I did do a little bit of preparation. I went down to Michelle's year two class and I thought, maybe they can tell me something about what it means to have a childlike faith. So I asked them a very simple question with no prompts, no scripts. Michelle was very good. She didn't go and tell them what they had to say or anything like that. I said, is God powerful and how is he powerful? Have a look at what they said. Yes, he is because of the people that he saved from them dying and stuff. He can save people and he can defeat people. Make the sun rise and the angels come, make things grow in life, no? He can help us and he can make people get better and all of those kind of things. He can heal people. He can save people. He can help people when they need something. He can create and make us do stuff. He can make people walk on water and he can heal people. He can go inside us and make us uh, sort of do stuff and he um, he brings the rain down and the sunshine. He made the world, so he probably won't have powers or something. Like how he made a whole world and made wardens, animals and that. Um, make miracles. Yeah? What kind of miracles? Like bring, um, bring, um, like, um, someone who's like, um, really hurt, he can make them better. And like in the story that um, when he was going to be in the, on the cross that a guy, one of his shepherds got out the sword and cut one of his ears off and then he got picked the ear up and put it back on. He can rise people from the dead and make miracles. Yeah, anything else he can do? Anything else. Anything else. Everything. Everything. I think Sari's little finish there was just, just precious. I, I kind of didn't pick it up at first, but he can do anything, anything. And uh, the, the faith of, of, a, of a simple child, they genuinely do believe that, that God can do anything. Here's the thing. I think I can honestly say to you, and I've reflected on this over the last couple of days, I think I can honestly say that I do believe that God can do anything. But the question I've had to ask myself is, do I have enough faith to actually ask him to move my mountain, to heal my friend 
or relative who has terminal cancer. To send that hot water bottle to the dark depths of Africa. To provide the money that we just don't have. To raise the dead. To walk on water, to drive out a demon. Or do I cover myself when I pray my prayers by having a backup plan? Do I, do I pray a prayer and I know I do this? Lord, please do this if it's your will. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray that prayer, but what's my motive? Is it just to protect myself and protect my pathetically weak faith? that just in case God isn't going to answer it or just in case he's got other plans. I tend not to bother God with the trivial things. He's too busy. He's got more important things to manage. But kids, hey, send, by the way, send a little doll as well because that would be a nice thing to do. As I read the Bible, it is full of miracles. Things that happen that defy the laws of nature. Things that just shouldn't happen. People raised from the dead, healed from leprosy, walking on water. How cool would that be? In the Old Testament, the prophets give us those examples. Jesus, when he walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, was just miracle after miracle after miracle. And then he handed that power over to his disciples and they did miracle after miracle after miracle. Whose power? Not their power, not even Jesus' power, but God's power. And they were accessing it. They were sourcing it. They were drawing on it to do amazing things. Yet, I don't know if you've thought about this. We don't see those miracles so much in our society today. And I've often wondered why. Is it that our society, our first world life that we live, has lost that childlike faith? You go to third world countries, stuff like this still happens. And some of you have had that opportunity to see that. But we in our first world sophistication and intelligence, it's easy to dismiss it as superstition or rationalise things away. I've had to acknowledge this week that I just don't have all the answers to some of this stuff. I can't tell you why God sometimes answers our prayers and sometimes he doesn't, or at least not in the way that we think he should. Some people just don't get healed despite our passionate prayers. Is that God's will? Or is it our lack of faith? Should we have prayed harder and then it would have happened? Maybe believed a little bit more? I just don't have all the answers. Not even sure I know how we develop a childlike faith. Seems such a simple concept and yet for us complicated adults, so hugely challenging. I'm not sure whether our 
lack of faith limits God's available power to us. Let me say that one to you again because maybe you can help me. I'm not sure whether our lack of faith actually limits God and his capacity to unleash his power to us. But here's what I do know. In Matthew 18 verse 3, it says this, except we become like little children, we will not enter the kingdom of God. It's not a physical thing. It's not about going back to childhood. It's about attitude. It's about belief. And most importantly, it's about trust. And it includes a belief, I don't want you to miss this, that there is nothing that God cannot do. He is all-powerful. He's God. Our God can do anything. And also know this, and maybe there is someone in this congregation that needs to hear this. God has the power to forgive. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we have done that God is not willing to forgive, to wipe out, to forget completely as if it never existed. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, not just to forgive us our sins, but to cleanse us, clean us, It disappears, never to be seen again. For a child, that's such an easy concept. They move on. They've been forgiven. It's forgotten. But for us as adults, we make it so much more complicated. But God forgives us. And he forgives everything. Anything we do, no matter how many times we stumble and fall, all we have to do is go back and ask. Let's bow our heads. Father, you've challenged us, you've challenged me to have a childlike faith. And that's not as simple as it sounds. Help me, Lord. And help anyone else here this morning who who struggles with that same challenge to not overthink it, to not over-rationalise it, but just come to you, Lord, believing that you can do anything. So you will unleash your power, your amazing power, not just in the big things, but in the little things on a daily basis. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning who's been struggling, hanging on to to something that they think is just too big for you to forgive, may they have that reassurance, Lord, that you've already forgiven them and that it's gone. And Lord, may we be able to live each day with that reassurance of not just your power, but that it's accessible 
to each one of us is my prayer in your name. Amen.